So again, last time, just a brief recap from last time. Uh, we began a new section here in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Chapter 11 begins a new section. As, as I like to argue, as I'm arguing, I should say, uh, this section really goes from 11 through 12, 13, and 14. It's all dealing with worship. It's all dealing with how we interact, how we um, perform, how we behave in worship. Now, chapter 11 specifically is dealing with issues of uh, submission and authority. It's also dealing with issues surrounding the Lord's Supper. And then 12, 13, and 14 really are focusing more on uh, the spiritual gifts, on speaking in tongues and prophecy, those two in particular, and how that was practiced in the church in those days. But here, uh, as we looked at this last week, uh, we barely scratched the surface of this, right? You know, we got through verse 6 of chapter 11 before time ran out, and, and as I meticulously went through it, I, I timed it just so that it would be right at 10.30 so I wouldn't have to receive any questions. Um, but uh, maybe I could do that again this week. And, but uh, no, I, I'm not, not that I'm afraid of questions, I just... We'll see how, how, how it goes when we get through this. But uh, we barely scratched the surface. But what we did see in verses 2 through 6, Paul uh, puts forth a principle stated. We see that principle primarily in verse 3, where uh, Paul in verse 2 praises them for remembering him and keeping the traditions as he had delivered to them. We, we spoke about how traditions refers to the teaching the apostolic teaching that we now have preserved for us in the Bible. Uh, They didn't have the New Testament back then, so it was apostolic teaching that laid the foundation of the church. But then he lays out a principle in verse 3 where he says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So there he sets forth the principle of this authority and submission and the order, the structure that is in creation from the very beginning is... God, then Christ, then man, then woman. Now we made an argument also that I use a fancy word ontologically, which is just onto and then logically kind of put on there, which refers to how father and son in the Trinity are ontologically equal. Men and women, as far as human beings go, are ontologically equal. We are equally human. We are equally made in the image of God. We, are, we share the same human nature, in this case a fallen human nature now after the fall. We are equal in that, just as the Son and the Father share in the same divine essence. They are equal in essence. But that does not uh, leave out the fact that there are functional roles and, and, and um, things that are different between father and son, between man and woman. They have a functionality. There is an economic difference there. There are roles that each one per, uh, performs. In the case of the father and the son, it is the father who sends the son into the world. It's not the father, it's not the son who sends the father, it is the father who sends the son. And the son is submissive to the father in that sense, because all throughout his ministry he says, I came to do the works of him who sent me. I came to do His will. My meat and my drink is to do the will of my Father who sent me. So Christ, the Son, submits to the Father. And the same thing goes with man and woman. And then Paul applies that principle in verses 4-6, through where he says that in the church men ought to pray and prophesy with their heads 
uncovered. Women ought to pray and prophesy with their heads covered. This head covering, as we will see this morning, is a symbol of authority that showed a woman as submissive to her husband. And we made the argument that the words Paul's using here are those words aner and gune, which refer to man as male and woman as female. So we're not talking humankind in general. We're talking men and women, and in particular husbands and wives, because uh, we don't want to say that the head of every woman is every man. Okay, It doesn't mean that every woman has to go and submit to the authority of every single man. It's to her own husband. And then, of course, not following this principle of covering or uncovering brings dishonor to one's head. So a man praying and prophesying with his head covered dishonors his head, which is Christ. A woman praying and prophesying with her head uncovered dishonors her head, which is her husband. So that's the recap. You're like, why couldn't you do it that fast last week? Well, because that was last week. I had to go through in more depth those verses. And I can, now I can just review it. Now as we go into the rest of this passage from verses 7 through 16, which I will read in a moment. Uh, in fact, why don't I just read them now? I'll just read them now. So uh, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 7. If you're not there, turn there now. But uh, for, uh, starting at verse 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering? But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So that's the passage we're going to look at this morning. Now, we may ask, of course, the question, why is Paul belaboring this point? Why is he mentioning this point? Well, we can only speak, but we can only infer, I should say, from what we, you know, from what we've seen so far in Corinth that he is bringing this up because it's not happening in the church. Right? Why would he bring it up if it's not happening in the church? So there must be something going on in their practice during worship that promotes, that, or prompts Paul, I should say, to mention this. Now, we don't know if this was part of the letter that the Corinthians sent to him that, to have questions answered. It doesn't seem to be, but I can't say that with any certainty because usually whenever Paul is addressing one of their questions, he will say, now concerning whatever. So you see that at the beginning of verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. You see at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning, now concerning. Uh, you see it in, uh, I don't, you don't see it in verse 17 of chapter 11, but that's usually the clue that he is addressing something in the Corinthian letter. This could be something he received in a report from Corinth that said, hey, this is going on in the church. He must be somehow referring to something. Now, 
again, given everything we've seen about what's going on in Corinth, the situation there, is it really surprising that you would see this sort of, you know, this kind of just flows out of this libertine attitude that they had, right? It's, it's all throughout this, this, this study through 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians have been sort of not just exploring, but almost abusing their liberty in Christ, right? You see it with, um, you know, when a man commits sexual immorality with his father's wife, the, the Corinthian church brags about it. Hey, look how progressive we are. When, you, you know, they have, you know, uh, men in the church having, uh, sex, you know, committing sexual immoral acts with pros- temple prostitutes, they just say, well, it's just the body. You know, so, you know, they, they have this libertine mentality in the church. So it shouldn't surprise us that amongst all of this libertine ab- attitude in the church that there would be also perhaps a feminist movement in the church. Perhaps they were aware of what Paul told the Galatian church in chapter 3, verse 28. We looked at it last week, where there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, all are one in Christ. So they thought, okay, that means gender roles have been obliterated. We're all equal. We can all do whatever we want. So we're going to explore our freedom off with the veil, off with the head covering, off with submission and authority. Kind of sounds like what we see going on in the world today, right? This obliteration of roles in the church. Uh, it's, now, it's not veils in question, right? We're not talking about veils in our time and day. But the world has always challenged the Word of God. The world has always challenged the biblical teaching when it comes to the roles of men and women. In fact, I watched an interesting short, it was like an 11 and a half, 12 minute video just kind of exploring the, the waves of feminism. You know, depending on who you ask, we're either in third-wave feminism or fourth-wave feminism. And it started off with a fairly noble goal in mind. The first wave was women should have equal rights. They should not be uh, discriminated against solely based on their gender. All right, I have no problem with that. Then, but then the, as it progresses, it's like, okay, now we want to obliterate roles. Now we want to, you know, obliterate any kind of distinction between men and women. Now to the point where men can be women. That's, that's where we've gone at. It's, you know, it's, I hate to use the slippery slope argument, but it almost seems that's what happens. You start scratching at the surface of something, and all of a sudden you start peeling it off, and, or, you know, you pull the thread on something, and all of a sudden you're unraveling your whole shirt if you don't stop pulling the thread. Ever since the sexual revolution of the 60s, the world has progressed. I put that in scare quotes because it hasn't progressed. You can almost say it's regressed. To a view that men and women are just completely interchangeable. There's just no difference at all between the sexes, period. That's just kind of where we're going at. Gender roles are cultural constructs that perpetuate the patriarchy, so to speak. And true freedom lies in women acting, looking, and behaving like men. So it all really boils down to this. Either the Bible is right, and the roles that God has established in creation are the only path to human flourishing and happiness, or the Bible is wrong. And that happiness and flourishing are found in exercising your autonomy, exercising your freedom, doing whatever your heart desires. There really is no third option. 
So having laid out the principle and applying it to the Corinthian situation, Paul now continues in verses 7 through 10 to defend the principle. So we begin here defending the principle, verses 7 through 10. So how do you defend this principle against those who say, you Christians are just imposing your worldview, you're imposing your preferences on all of us? As Paul was only interested in perpetuating the patriarchy, Paul was only interested in maintaining this, you know, this idea of male dominance. That's what Paul was doing. Well, Paul goes back to show it's not preference, it's not cultural. It goes all the way back to creation. Look at verse 7. For man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now Paul here says that man, again that word uh, on air, male, is not to have his head covered because he is in the image and glory of God. Now keep your finger here, and let's turn to Genesis. You're going to want to keep your finger in Genesis. So if your Bible has two ribbons, put one of them in Genesis, keep one of them in 1 Corinthians. If not, well, find out some other way to keep the two separate. (laughs) Use an extra finger. But Genesis 1, looking primarily at verses 26 and 27... So starting in verse 26 of Genesis 1, uh, the creation account on the sixth day, then God said, let us make man in our image. There is sort of a cloaked reference to the Trinity. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, obviously, that verse 27, that's the key one there. So, verse 27, God created man. Now, in Hebrew, that's the word Adam. So, Adam just means man. Okay, He created Adam in his own image. Now, Adam is like the Greek word anthropos, which means, it could mean man, it, it can also be spoken of humanity in general, mankind. Here, the reference here is more to mankind in general. He created man, all of them, in both of their genders, in the image of God. That's why he goes on and says, uh, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And those are two different uh, Hebrew words, zakir for male and Uh, Nekava for female. So men and women are both created in the image of God. But Paul says, back to 1 Corinthians, I'll keep keep Genesis open there. Back to 1 Corinthians. So here, Paul says, though, even though both are created in the image of God, man, on air, male, the man, is also the glory of God, the doxa of God. God, the man reflects the glory of God. So both man and woman reflect the image of God. Man reflects the glory of God. And as he'll say, woman is the glory of man. So woman reflects the glory of man. Now this is the heart of what in Christianity we call complementarianism. Complementarianism. That's 
complement with an E, not an I. So you're not like saying, oh, how wonderful you look. No, you're complementing one another. The two fit together. So they're different, but they complement one another. The differences complement one another. Men and women are equal in essence and dignity. Again, both being created in the image of God. But men and women are different in role and function in the world. Now this much is just clear biologically speaking, even though we're questioning biology now <laughs> in our day and age. I never would have thought of this, <laughs> that I would see the day that we would literally question biology. And the very same people who are questioning biology are the ones who keep telling us to follow the science. Anyway, I digress. Simple biology tells us that it is clear that men and women are different. I don't need to go through a lesson on the birds and the bees, I'm sure. We all know that. We are different. Men and women complement one another in roles and functions. Now, it's not me saying that. It's the Bible saying that. So, I'm just the messenger. Okay, Your beef is not with me. Man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. And what we could say from this is that the man represents God's rule and authority in creation, and the woman is the helper given by God to the man to help him in his role of authority and rule over creation. Again, this is not me saying this. This is the Bible. Okay. Now, it's not in my notes. I'm going to pause here for a second. Because... It makes you wonder. It's like, what well, does that mean that women can't run for political office? That they can't have any, you know, they can't be CEOs in banks or companies or what? No, I don't think that's what it means. But it does mean, I think, that God has created man in general to be in a position of authority and woman to be the helper to the man. The Bible talks about how God judges, uh, how God will judge his people by giving them women and children to rule over them. Now, it doesn't mean that a woman in, in rulership is a curse to a nation. Just the, the, the reference specifically refers to how they are not equipped. They were not trained for that role. Okay? They are inexperienced rulers. So the men, because of being judged, will be taken away, and all that will be left will be women and children who are not experienced in ruling the nation. But we see this all throughout the Bible. We see this all throughout human history. In general, men have been in positions of authority in government, in the church, in the home. It doesn't mean, again, that women can't rule. We see examples of that in the Bible. Deborah was a judge over Israel. And it's not so much, though, I think that that is an exception to the rule because the men were so weak in Israel during that time. In fact, even Barak, the, 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 the one who was the war leader, deferred to Deborah. It's like, I won't go unless you come with me. And Deborah says, okay, I'll come with you, but guess what? You're not going to get the blessing now because you refuse to obey God. God will give the blessing to someone else. And he gives it to Jael, who drives a tent peg through, through, I forget what's his name, the guy's head that he drove it through. Anyway, I do remember Jael. <laughs> so, back to my notes so I don't go over time. Man represents God's rule and authority in creation. The woman is his helper. And again, it's not me saying this. Look at verses 8 and 9 in 1 Corinthians. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. So Paul here is saying man is not from the woman. That's a, it's a prepositional phrase in the Greek. 
but woman is from man. Now, what does that mean? Okay, well, let's go back to Genesis. This time, Genesis chapter 2. Some people like to look at Genesis 1 and 2 as, you know, the skeptics say, see, God created, then he recreated. No, he's just telling the same story from a different vantage point in Genesis 2. Yeah, so Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18, I'll read through 23. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Okay, so now right there, you know, because Genesis 2 is, as Byron said, a recap of Genesis 1, Genesis 1 just gives you sort of like the 30,000-foot view of creation. And in that, um, he says that, you know, that on the sixth day, God created man, male and female, in his image. Now here, you've got sort of like you're zooming in on the sixth day, and you see that man, that God created the man first. Okay, they weren't created simultaneously. The man is created first. And then he says, it is not good for the man that he should be alone. I will make him a helper. If you've got a King James, it'll say, help meet, comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam, the man, to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So there is that exercise of dominion and authority that the man has over creation by naming them. What's that? Sisera? Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> uh, where was I? All right, so Adam gave names, verse 20. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a, sleep, a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So there Paul is driving this, this theme from Genesis into the Corinthians, where he says that man is not from the woman, but woman from the man. God formed the man from the dust of the earth in, on day six. He formed the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And then when he said it's not good for the man to be alone, he put him into a deep sleep and then took a rib out of his side and formed the woman. So woman literally is out of man. And you, again, you see that in the Hebrew words for uh, man and woman there is ish and isha. You know, just like man, woman. You know, you can almost say that when, when man saw the woman, he said, whoa, man. That's uh, <laughs> it's, uh, one way to say it. Um, and the woman was made by God to be a helper comparable to him. That word there is azer. Azer. We mentioned this, I think, when I was preaching on John last week, Lazarus. It's a, it's a form of the name Eliezer, which is the one whom God helps. you got that word Azer there. The word helper means one who helps, one who assists, one who aids. It does not mean slave. It does not mean servant. It does not mean someone who is inferior to. It means helper. It means assistant. It means aid. In fact, this word is used of God many times. In particular, Psalm 33, verse 20. 
Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. He is our Azer and our shield. He is our helper. So because this is all sort of then baked in the cake, you can go back to 1 Corinthians 11. This idea of submission and authority sort of baked into the cake of creation, Paul concludes his defense of the principle in verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So Paul here, as he's been laying out, because man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man, because man is not from woman, but woman from man, because man is not for the woman, but woman for the man, he concludes, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Now, if you have a New King James, one thing I like about the New King James is that they italicize words that are in the English that are not in the original language that are used to sort of assist in our understanding of what the verse says. So in verse 10, if you have a New King James, you will see that the words a symbol of are italicized, which means it is not in the original Greek. Literally, the phrase should read like this. Because of this, the woman ought to have authority or power upon the head. So the New King James translators added a symbol of authority on her head. Hers also italicized there as well. So this, it's added by the translators, but it makes the sentence make more sense. Because of all these things that Paul has laid out, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. The woman ought to have some kind of sign that shows that she is in submission to her husband. So in other words, because of the principle in verse 3, women in Corinth should show their submission to their husbands by wearing the veils. That was the sign in Corinth. By having their heads covered to honor their head, who is the man or the husband. And then he throws in at the end of verse 10, because of the angels. Okay, we're not talking like the, the baseball team in Southern California angels. Uh, we're talking about the heavenly angels. Uh, in other words, the angels who are supreme beings of authority and submission, right? They perfectly submit to the God. The, heaven, the, the, the angels of heaven perfectly do the will of, he, of God in heaven. They are watching. They are watching. They are present everywhere. They are present even now here in our worship service. So as they see us worship the one true God, they are very much interested in the fact of how we show submission and authority in the church. And they are very much interested in seeing that the proper roles and authority of submission and authority are practiced properly in the church. So we do this not only because it's the right thing to do, but because also the angels see our worship. Now, having said all that, I know I'm not winning brownie points with the world outside. <laughs> right? The world outside does not like this. This is not popular in our culture today, that to say that women must submit to their husbands, that they must show a sign of submission. I might even be accused of saying, well, that, that's, that's all right and good for you to say. You're the man, right? You're, you're a man. So, of course, you want to teach what, you know, sort of benefits you. Well, put, this, put it this way. God has these authority structures in place, and guess what? God holds the one in authority to a higher degree of responsibility than the one who is in a role of submission. 
God holds those in authority, in authority positions, in a higher, to a higher standard than those in the authority, in the, in the submissive role. As a pastor of this church, I am, I am in a position of authority over this flock. I will be called to answer to how I shepherded this flock. You won't be called to answer for that. I will be called to answer for that. Husbands will be called how, to, to how they ruled and, and, and gave authority in their homes. Leaders will be called to give a, an answer to how they ruled in society. Parents will be given, will be given to answer to how they uh, ruled and, and raised their children. God holds those in authority positions to a higher standard than those in the position of sub, uh, submission. Now, back in the garden, we're not going to go back to Genesis, but back in the garden, who ate the fruit first? Eve. Eve ate the fruit first. Eve was deceived. Paul will say that in 1 Timothy. Eve was deceived. But we don't say we're all fallen in Eve. Right? What do we say? We're fallen in Adam. Right? It was Adam's responsibility to guard the garden from the serpent. The serpent was an invader into God's temple garden. And Adam had the, the, the responsibility as the one who is to have dominion over the earth, to kick the serpent out of the garden. And he didn't do that. So Adam was held to a higher position of authority. It was his duty to protect his wife, to protect the garden, to uphold the glory of God in whom he is a reflection of, and he failed to do that. Adam fell in the garden. We are fallen in Adam. We, we bear the guilt of Adam's sin. We don't bear the guilt of Eve's sin. Now again, we live in a culture and society where to say what is being said here in this passage is hated, is reviled. We are re ridiculed. We are uh, mocked. We are hated for this, for this teaching. And again, to be sure, the world always hates what the Bible teaches. That, that's, it's not going to change just because we're not talking about submission and authority. But our current day culture is especially antagonistic toward the Bible's teaching on roles and genders. Because it goes against our desire for complete autonomy, complete freedom to do what we want. Right? I mean, autonomy is saying, it's, it's my will be done, damn the consequences, I'm going to do what I want because it makes me feel good right now. I wonder how many of these people undergoing, what do they call it now? What's, what's the catchphrase? Gender-affirming care. <laughs> your gender was affirmed at your birth, okay? <laughs> but gender-affirming care. I wonder how many of these people have regrets, you know, years down the road, when they realize that all of the treatment, all of the drugs they're pumping into their body is poisoning them. So that's the principle defended. You're like, boy, you've got to hurry up now, right? Yep, I've got to hurry up. The principle harmonized in verses 11 and 12. So even though man is not from woman and man is not for woman, we see that man is neither independent from the woman. Look at verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through Woman, but all things are from God. 
So again, as part of the created order, men and women are not independent of one another. Again, they complement. See, if you were to, to have a view that men and women are completely interchangeable, then they would be independent of one another because it wouldn't matter. They're just like both cogs that you can plug into a machine somewhere. But here, they're not independent of one another. That's why they complement one another. That's why they are, their puzzle pieces is sort of fit together and meant to fit together so that they, together they reflect the glory and, or they reflect the image of God. But even now, it's popular in feminist circles for women to say, I don't need no man, right? That's, that's the kind of thing. I don't need a man to make myself complete. I don't need a man to fulfill me as a woman. Not me, personally, as a woman. I, I, I identify as a man, okay? Just to set the record clear, I'm speaking hypothetically. I mean, you see it in movies, right? Girl power moments in movies where you, you get this little five foot four, five foot three inch woman who's like 110 pounds, and she's just like effortlessly beating up these six foot, six foot four, 260 pound men as if it's nothing. You know, she's just flipping him and kicking, you know, and punching them like, oh, you know, it's like, okay, you gotta have those moments in movies because otherwise women will not feel as if they're being fulfilled. Paul here says plainly, men need women and women need men. They complement one another. And then proof of the above statement is seen in the fact that even as woman was created from the man, as Eve was taken out of Adam through, her, through his rib, man comes through the woman. I don't think I need to paint that picture, right? Men, are come, they come into the world through their mothers, right? Mothers give birth to men. A man cannot come into this world unless he is born of a woman. And all men who are the glory of God are raised by women who are also the glory of man. Now again, at the risk of sounding unpopular, I'm, probably that risk keeps going up the longer I talk on this. Um, women who want to chase careers like men and ship their children off to daycare centers, I think are missing out on their true calling in this world. This is not to say that women can't work or even have careers, but it's this mentality that has led to women pushing off marriage and children until much later in life. And then you start running the risk of having, you know, running risky pregnancies when you're having pregnancies in your 30s, in your late 30s. And, and why do they do this? They, they do this to be VPs, CEOs, corporate executives, to be cogs in a corporate machine, well, what about doctors and lawyers? Well, the same thing. Doctors and lawyers work ungodly hours, right? They are always on call. A lawyer, a doctor is always on call. A lawyer works. If you're a lawyer, you're not working like 80, 90, 100 hours a week. You're not working hard enough in, in some law firms. The amount of time spent to pursue these careers does not lend itself to family and children. So that's why those are often either sacrificed entirely or pushed much later in life. Well, now you may say, well, men do this. Right, and men do this, and their wives complain that they're spending so much time away from the home. It's not a good thing. I'm not saying it's good because men do it, and it's not good because women do it. It's not a good thing. Unfortunately, we live in a culture, thanks to the Industrial Revolution, where we're no longer working in the, and around the home. Now, here in a farming community, it's much different. The, you know, the men are out there working in the field, the women are helping them, but it's all sort of like, still like a family business, right? But if you're working in the corporate world, you go off to a place somewhere, of course now you can work from home, so maybe that might change the dynamic a little bit, 
but usually you go off somewhere, you spend eight to ten hours a day there, plus probably an hour or two traveling back and forth, so half the day you're outside of the home, away from your spouse, away from your children, and if you've got, you know, if you fall into this like two-parent income trap, now you have to put your kids in daycare so that you can both uh, work, so you can make enough money to maintain the lifestyle that you have, that you have sort of become I, you know, you would say accustomed to, but I would say maybe the lifestyle to which you've become enslaved to. And now the children are sort of being raised by people that are not you. <laughs> Your kids are sort of under the influence of other people. Do you trust those people? Are they going to instill the same values in your kids? I don't know. To show you the power that a woman can wield in the world, turn over to 1 Timothy 2. You want to see real power? I'll show you real power. 1 Timothy 2. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15. All right, 1 Timothy 2, verses 14 and 15. So Paul here says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, Paul's not saying here that there is another way to salvation. That, you know, all you women, because you've bore children, you are now automatically in the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying here, saved in the sense of delivered from. And what you're being delivered from is the stigma that could apply to you because it was the woman who ate the fruit first, right? You know, this, the, you know, the male chauvinists say, well, you women, you're always, you know, you're so easily deceived. Well, you can erase that stigma by ha- bearing children and raising them to be in faith, love, and holiness. Again, not salvation through childbirth, but vindication of the stigma of the fall, a woman who raises children who continue in faith, love, and self-control, in a sense, are providing salvation for the world. There's a, say, there's a saying that goes, it goes like this, right? The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Women, you have a power, a superpower, not only to bear children, but to nurture them and to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to have a strong influence over their lives in the world. Every man sitting here today owes a huge debt to their mothers who raised them, who probably did the primary char- uh, duty of raising the children. To be sure, boys need fathers, and fatherlessness is a huge epidemic in our country. But without a mother, I think men would be savages. We would be little savages running around without any influence in the world. So that's the principle harmonized. Even though men are in a position of authority, women have great power. They have great power in this world. And they do so by helping out in the families as well. Finally, point three. I really got to hurry. So wrapping up now, Paul ask the Corinthians to consider the situation themselves. So now he's like, okay, I've laid it out. Now consider this. Verse 13, I'll read through 15. Judge for yourselves. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So the question they are to ponder, the question they are to judge, is whether or not it is proper, whether or not it is becoming, whether or not it is fit for a woman to pray or prophesy with an uncovered head. In other words, in Corinthian culture, a woman with an uncovered head would stand out. It would be conspicuous. Because in that culture, again, if you had an uncovered head, it meant that you were available. If you had your head shaved or shorn, it meant three things, all of them bad. You were either a prostitute, you were either uh, you know, suffering punishment for adultery, or you were considered like a lesbian or feminist. The answer to the question, of course, in verse 13 is no, it is not proper. And then Paul appeals to nature by looking at hair, as nature's head covering. Now there's some debate about Paul's use of the word nature. The word is phusis. We get physics from it. Um, it can speak of what is natural as opposed to what is abnormal or aberrant. The word can also speak of to what is customary or habitual or instinctual. Now for as long as I've been alive, men typically have had shorter hair. Women typically have had longer hair. And even the women who have shorter hair usually style it differently than the men who have longer hair. That's just what I've seen my entire life. This is not intended to be an indictment on men with long hair or women with short hair. In fact, if you are a Jewish person taking a Nazarite vow, you are required to grow your hair out. You are required not to cut your hair for however long the vow was in place. Paul is believed... Uh, was possibly under a Nazarite vow because in the book of Acts, he, it, it talks about how he has to go in and cut his hair. He has to fulfill the vow and cut his hair. So perhaps he had taken a Nazarite vow and during that time he couldn't cut his hair. Samson, right? For all his faults and foibles, <laughs> Samson uh, was a Nazarite from birth and he had, the, you know, the, you know so supposedly the power was in his hair. You know, he had this, this long, luxurious hair. But even from a natural perspective, men and women have different hair physiologies. I heard this in a sermon, and I actually wanted to confirm it, so I looked it up on the internet. Testosterone and estrogen have a different effect on hair growth. Right? There are three stages to hair growth. There is the, the actual growing out, then there's the resting period, then there's the falling out period, and then that recycles itself. Now, if you are a man and you have more t- testosterone in your body, that causes your hair to go through that process faster. Sorry, men. <laughs> if you have thinning hair, sorry. Blame God. <laughs> you go through that process faster. Estrogen in women has the opposite effect of lengthening the hair life cycle, if you will. That's why a bald man is much more common than a bald woman. You don't really see... Now, yeah, okay, there are exceptions, right? You know, it's obviously not all men are balding and and there are some women who have thinning. But that's why, again, women, when you get older, your hair starts to thin. Because your body is no longer producing estrogen as it once did. Now, Paul's point in verses 14 and 15 is to say, no matter how you cut it, for a man to have hair like a woman is a dishonor to him. And for a woman to have hair like a man is a dishonor as well. God has given women long hair as sort of like a natural head covering for her. Thus it is proper for a woman to wear a head covering while praying. And then he concludes in verse 16 
But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So apparently Paul has dealt with this issue before. Because if you want to be contentious, guess what? That's the practice in the church. That's the practice we have in the church. Now, it's custom. It is our common practice in the church. Not just Corinth, but all the churches of God. The world may accuse us of being archaic, bigoted, sexist, out of date, but in the church, we do things the way God tells us to do things. Now, bring it at home, because we really got to wrap up here. So it's over. I made it through this chapter. Now, last week I addressed the issue of whether or not head coverings were sort of a timeless command or a cultural thing in Corinth. And I said that the principle was timeless, the idea of showing submission and authority, but the practice was cultural in the first century Corinth. Now, I still stand by that, but I was kind of looking into this even more this week, and there are not a few who, I'm using the language of Acts, right? Not a few. (laughs) There are not a few who believe the head coverings to be a command in effect today. I thought it was a, 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 a very small minority, but it's, it, it's still a minority, but it's not as small as I once thought. Because I listened to sermons, I read articles that defended this position. There's even a YouTube channel called The Head Covering Movement. And all they do is post videos to defend this view that you ought to wear a veil. So it seeks to go back to this as a common practice. I mean, even R.C. Sproul wanted to go back to head coverings. I, I, when I saw that that was the case, I was like, that doesn't sound right. It's like, then I, I saw a video, it's like, yeah, that's, he says we, you know, it would be good to go back to that. Now, I still feel that head coverings are cultural and that we need to practice the principle in a way that makes sense in our culture today. In Corinth, an uncovered woman was like a shaved woman. And here, head coverings are a symbol of authority and submission. So we need to have, whatever that makes sense in our culture, we need to have some kind of way to show submission and authority in our culture. And we'll stop there because I am really running up on time now. But um, next time, Lord willing, uh, we'll start looking at the next section. I don't think I'm going to get through it all, but we'll start looking at the next section.